The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Alyssa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College. We bring you conversations that bring together the best minds in the country to prepare for COP26. Alyssa, hello and welcome. We have a bit of a challenge on our hands today, don't we? Hi, Amanda. Yeah, nice to be in conversation again. Yeah, it's a tricky one today. (laughs) So much to say about just transitions and pathways to socially inclusive decarbonisation. I mean, it's a huge, huge topic. I know it's one that you feel very strongly about, and I do too. And I'm really fascinated and delighted that we have two such expert guests with us today who are going to guide us through some of this complexity. Professor Simone Abram is a professor of anthropology at Durham University and also a director of Durham Energy Institute, where her role is to have a social science input into integrated energy modelling and to bring a science, technology and society approach to energy systems integration. Simone, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Our second guest, Dr Rebecca Ford, is a Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Strathclyde where she works jointly between the Departments of Government and Public Policy and Electronic and Electrical Engineering. Rebecca is also Research Director of the UK's Energy Revolution Research Consortium, known as Energy Rev, and one of the four COP26 Fellows working on energy justice. Rebecca, hello and welcome. Hi, lovely to be here. Thanks so much. Now, clearly, both of you bring together those those disciplines where you go across sectors, and I think that's one of the things that that some of the conversations around just transition really encapsulate, isn't it? It's actually bringing together not just issues around carbon and science and technology, but actually looking at it through a a social and um, semi-political lens. Simone, I wonder if you could perhaps start us off with a bit of a definition about what we mean by just transition, because for many people that might be a phrase that's new to them. Thanks, Amanda. Yes, of course. Um, Well, I suppose taking it very simply, there are two parts. One is about the transition away from a carbon emitting economy or a carbon emitting lifestyle. And the other is about finding a way to do that that's, that's fair. You know, what, what is, what, what a kind of a transition would be just? What would justice mean? And usually there's a number of approaches taken here and to thinking about what justice is. We think about, um, the outcomes. What would be a just outcome that would be fair for everybody? And that's about, um, um, distribution, for example, how are the costs and benefits of a transition uh, made just, how are they made fair? Another is a, what we call procedural justice, which means how do we do it in a way that's fair for everybody? And that includes things like how do we make sure we listen to everybody who's affected? How do we recognise the voices of different people and, the, and their interests and their concerns? And also, very importantly, restorative justice. How do we make good the things that are, are already problems or the, or the sufferings that people have had from the past or the injustices or inequalities that already exist? So there's a lot of different um, aspects and obviously nuances and uh, things that compete with each other and, and, and chal- real challenges in thinking, how do we change um, how do we change things for the better in such a way that it's fair for everybody who's involved? And I really like that. And for, for me, there's a 
a very interesting temporal dimension, right? So it's not about taking a snapshot of, of what's happening at one point in time, but that word transition, you know, we're looking forward, we're looking forward to 2050 or in the case of Scotland, 2045, when we're trying to reach those net zero targets. And we know that the actions that are happening today and the decisions that we need to make today are going to have impacts across that time period and beyond that. And so for me, I'm really interested as well in how, how this plays out over time. And particularly, you know, we've talked about this complexity and Simone and I both come to this with um, a number of different hats on looking at the energy system. Uh, my work's on energy, actually looking at energy from a variety of different perspectives. And I think that's very important to think about the, the feedback loops that you might not see otherwise or the unintended consequences that could happen unless you're looking at the whole system, this whole system in transition. And so it's absolutely no easy feat. And I think it requires bringing together such a diversity of perspectives, um, which is, I think, one of the really, really exciting things that the COP26 Universities Network is doing and enabling. Yeah. Um we need to look forward and backwards as well, in a way, because one of the things we can learn from energy history is that the idea of a transition from one thing to another, actually, that's very rare. Uh, we very rarely leave one thing behind completely, but we just start doing things differently. So there's not necessarily a start, there's not necessarily a finish, but there's a change in the way that things happen. And also we can see that that happens in different ways and it has different causes and it has different drivers and it has different effects. Uh, and until you really take that holistic and, and rounded approach, you don't recognize that, for example, um, there's an argument that um, empire and colonialism was driven by a need for more wood fuel, for example. Um, and until you see that, you don't see that actually all these, these things are so connected. So justice is not just about what we do here now today, as Rebecca says. It's really a global issue and it can be seen at all sorts of different scales. There's justice at the really tiny local community level. There's justice at the global level. And that's why this is really quite challenging and needs a lot of attention. Um, we can't just solve uh, global inequality by finding a new technology, for example. It's really much more um, tied in than that. It makes it a really huge agenda, though, and and for many people, that there's just the sheer size of the transition that we need to go through as societies to to even be close to to a, a carbon neutral world or a zero carbon world is is so so overwhelming. People might say, "Well, I just don't know where to start," you know, and I'll just concentrate on the tiny bit that I can do. But it's terribly important that we see that interconnectedness, don't we? And we see the intersectionality of these different drivers. So, so how would you? begin to just scope out perhaps those first steps or the key things that we need to think about on this journey. That's right. And I think there's a real danger of people feeling overwhelmed and, and, and hopeless, whereas actually there are things we can do at every level. So it's not like there's one solution. Actually, everything that you do as an individual is important, but you're limited in the structures that you deal with. So you're limited in the choices that you have. And those choices need to be created or changed by people at a higher level in different positions of power. So we actually really need to look at all of these different options. So I think it's very tempting for you know big organizations and governments to say, oh, well, it's up to the consumer to choose what they want to do. But you can only choose what's out there to choose, can't you? So we need governments to act. We need corporations to act. We need individuals to act. But we are, we're not isolated individuals. We live in a society, we live in an environment, uh, and, and those things also need to change. And we can't do that alone. We need to join together and think about this at every opportunity. But everything we do for, as an individual, as part of a collective, they're all contributing, they're all important. 
in, in terms of being able to take those first steps towards approaching the question of just transition. I, I think rather than feeling cowed and terrified by the fact that we have to make this enormous project of a just transition happen, it's more about making people realize that there's really a social dimension to this urgent transition that we need to achieve and being really conscious of that and cognizant of that in the processes that we take from here on in. So that means that it might be that you're making decisions in a local government who's committed to net zero or who's tackling adaptation to climate change. But when you're doing that, this agenda reminds those people to think about the social dimensions and bring in the communities with them, think about the short and the long term um, and perhaps unintended social consequences um, or missed opportunities of what they're doing. And so it's for those people then equally, if you were someone in the private sector thinking about your climate resilience or reducing your climate impacts to also think about your workforce or the people in your supply chain in this different and socially orientated way. So it's really expanding the agenda in a way that's not meant to be frightening or terrifyingly impossible, but really meant to be something additional that can be part of the, the decision-making process. And I'd even take it a step further and say, we need a paradigm shift in how we think about people at different stages. So we need to move away from this focus on um, people making individual choices as consumers to empowering people to act as citizens, as communities and help shape and create that change in collaboration with their community groups, um, local government, national government, and so on. And so it really is about bringing people together. And for me, actually, this is, this is a key point because it's about creating that alignment, not just between people at maybe different scales of that decision making, but also around the outcomes that different sorts of people want to achieve, because this is going to require a shift in our everyday lives, our businesses, our industries. And so if we are pulling at tensions and trying to achieve different outcomes, then that's going to be increasingly challenging for delivering net zero. So it's about thinking around how these different um, benefits, not just around how they're distributed, but how they can start to align and strengthen and support our transition to net zero whilst delivering on all of these other things that are so important to us. You know, I want to, I want to stay in a warm home. I want to raise my kids in a way that is aligned with my vision of what a happy, sustainable, equitable, fair future looks like. We can't touch on these issues, though, without looking at the issue of inclusion and exclusion, can we? Because so often in the UK, we're polarised between this, this this debate between the individual taking responsibility and yet constantly being told that, you know, the government's, the government's got this hand, they're handling it. They, you know, if we look at pandemic as a parallel, but I'm in short, the, the same goes for decarbonisation. The government's in charge, they're making decisions, they're, lead, they're showing leadership or not. Um, and yet we as individuals are meant to take responsibility. But actually, there's only so much an individual can do. And also, it really does come back down to the issue of poverty or non-poverty, doesn't it? Wealth. You know, those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to choose to buy an electric car or put solar panels on our roof. You know, this is a an additional choice that we make. For many people, you know, poverty is the barrier to any form of inclusion and particularly so, I think, around a decarbonisation agenda because you don't have a choice where you get your fuel. You don't have a choice, possibly the home that you're living in or the level of insulation. It's a real, I think that's a real nugget that we have to wrestle with. That's absolutely right. And, and part of the question here is, is why 
why do you need to be wealthy to make those choices? And that's really tied up with, again, larger issues around fiscal policy, for example. You know, where are the tax incentives? Why is it so cheap to buy petrol? Why is it, uh, why is air travel more accessible to some people than others? And, and why is good food more expensive uh, for some than for others? And they're, they're really quite fundamental questions. And, and I don't think they we're going to solve any of those by pushing people on personal choice. As you say, it's not personal choice here. That's the issue. You know, even, gosh, it's nearly 20 years ago I, I, when I first moved to Sheffield and I was working on planning issues, I went to a meeting on a council estate that was going to be refurbished. And all of the council um, estate tenants who were there were saying what they wanted out of a new estate was um, recycling that was accessible. They wanted really efficient homes that were warm and, and they wanted solar panels and, and local services and, and so forth. And, you know, even, even then, they really weren't heard. But that's where the call was coming from. Those were the people who wanted that kind of change. Um, and it's, it's, I feel like we've lost so much time to, to change things in that direction. We really have a lot of catching up to do. So um, we need to catch up. And we need to move forward. So we need to work really quickly. And we're only going to do that by taking people with us. And that's particularly challenging now, I think, because there are so many, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, false, false information, untruths. And we're going to have to find a way to, to address that. We can't pretend that we're starting from zero. We're not. We're in the middle of something. I think that um, there's a really good point here around around bringing bringing everyone along, particularly those who are least able to to participate or to afford those changes. Where where we are talking about personal actions, and um, and one of the things that really struck me uh, in the Committee on Climate Change's new uh, newly released sixth carbon budget was looking at some of the economics around it. And if you're looking at kind of economic wide finances, I was actually quite surprised to see the the fact that to deliver some of the things that we're trying to do to reach net zero, it's not going to have a massive um, detrimental economic impact. And so I think the key challenge is absolutely for, for policymakers is how those impacts are distributed and how policy can help um, shape these shifts, these transitions that we need so that people are all brought along and that we don't end up with those who can afford to change, changing and reaping the benefits and other people being um, left behind. But I do think this also raises um, raises another issue where, you know, at least when we're looking at some of the energy related transitions. So for example, the shift in heating. We know that at least in the UK and many temperate climates around the world, heating and cooling is a massive, massive issue. And the need to shift away from gas, the need to shift towards heat pumps, for example. And there are a lot of projects at the moment that are targeting people in council houses. So social housing is, is a sector where they're taking action. I have two concerns about this. One is that those people could end up as guinea pigs for something that doesn't end up working particularly well. Um, and so we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. But also there are huge um, people I think that might be stuck in the middle, if you like. So people that might be in private rented accommodation where they have limited capacity to act. We might not immediately be looking at, at these people as um, those who are most deprived or, or you know, the, in the 
severest levels of fuel poverty, but who for other structural reasons have limited capacity to act and potentially their landlords have limited capacity to act. So, you know, I think we need to sometimes move away from thinking of everyone as the bad guys and start to look at how these structural problems can be addressed um, in that policy context. Yeah, and I would say that a lot of people in business are also really keen to change, but it's very difficult if you're in a competitive industry to change on your own. And that's, in a way, that's why we have a government, isn't it? To set the ground rules. And we need a government to say, okay, everybody's got to take to, to meet at these standards. We do that a little bit, but we could do an awful lot more. And certainly in the housing industry, that's really apparent um, because I well, there are a few, but very rare housing developers who are prepared to go the extra mile, but actually many of them would do it if it was, if everyone had to do it. So we do need a kind of, we do need to get together and make our decisions about what we want overall. And I think it's hard for some industries to, to be seen to say that. I think they might be saying it in back channels, you know, come on, we need to change the regulations here, but they wouldn't come out and say it because it, it doesn't look right, does it? I mean, the role of the, the private sector is key here as well, isn't it? I mean, because we can have excellent public policy and, you know, we have a carbon budget, which the, the government failed to meet every year, but we can have the policy instruments in place. But unless we've taken the private sector with us in, in this, in this conversation, then, then we're, we're working with one hand tied behind our back. But, but I just wonder if we could explore perhaps a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of conversation at the moment about, you know, the, the green recovery and post COVID recovery and green jobs being the answer and the way forward. But, it's not as simple as that, is it? I mean, it's a point that you make in the paper about, you know, job creation doesn't necessarily deliver just outcomes. And this, it, it, there's a nuance and a complexity to this as well, isn't there? There, there, there certainly is, yeah. It's, um, well, it's sort of disappointing when you look, after, look back over the last 10 to 15 years what's happened with potential green jobs because there was a huge boost with the feed-in tariff and the, uh, initially with the, um, the Green Deal and so forth. And many, many... Small businesses, particularly small businesses and self-employed people, got all ready and and uh, you know started delivering um, new new systems in a way that was actually, you know, you could say that a, the ideal scenario is to have lots of um, lots of small businesses providing a kind of ecosystem here, right? Um, and because the because the policy changed, because the the funding stopped, most of those companies went out of business. And we're seeing the same thing now again with the green home um, initiative. We need consistent policies for businesses to survive, um, and that's really uh, something we could hope the uh, the white paper finally might might produce. And we have yet to look at the sort of details properly, but um, yeah, we we need certainly to have a consistent policy means that industry can take action. I think consistent policy and, and implemented in the right way. So, you know, if I think actually about some of the very recent policies, uh, we were talking about um, some of the, you know, the post-COVID green home grants, for example, um, the supply chain has really struggled to meet that. And I don't think that's necessarily about the wrong policy or um, perhaps we do need to think about longevity, but also how it's implemented and how it's targeted to allow those supply chains to build up, to allow those jobs to be created so so certainly part of it is around that that security and that those long-term signals but I think another really important part about this and, and we talked at the beginning about in, engaging people in the process engaging people in discussions and decisions about what their future looks like it's not just about 
finding and pouring money to create new jobs. It's also about engaging with workers who might be shifting from, from a dying industry to a new industry and bringing them along as well. Yeah, and it's about community engagement in the wider sense as well, isn't it? Because, I mean, the Green Home Grants has come in for quite a lot of stick by being not terribly well administered, people waiting for money, people pulling out. I put my hand up here. I'm still in the queue. I've been waiting, you know, <laughs> nothing nothing so far. Um, and it is a great, you know, it's a great initiative. It's meant to run for a year and unfortunately it's been extended for another year. But again, that presupposes that you're in the position to be able to stump up the remaining five, six, £10,000 to retrofit your home or fit your home with, with, with air source or ground source or solar or whatever. So again, it's quite exclusionary. Um, and then we need to think about the community and, and perhaps the answer is things like district heating systems, which would put some of those social housing um, networks onto a shared system or actually some more imaginative approaches to actually getting proper community engagement at a local level around decision making. So people feel that it's something that they own and they have an investment in. Yes, again, again, I think that's something that was very, there was a lot of movement around that in the turn of the 2000s, wasn't there? And there were a real kind of flourishing of small organisations, community energy organisations and so forth. And again, I think because of the very fluctuating situation and the economic situation, they've many of them have disappeared. So we, I think it's important to remember that the second time you try and do that, it's harder. Um, so, you know, we need to kind of regenerate that enthusiasm. But but provide some kind of um, security for that. It's very difficult to run a community organisation in your, in your spare time. It's very different to get people to be involved in tenants associations. You know, it's a, it's a big commitment. I think it's really important not to overlook the commitment and the, the time that you're demanding from people when you say community engages, engagement is important and to recognise that community engagement that's not done well is twice as bad as not doing anything because then you're putting people off yeah, it's very easy to become cynical. It's very easy to think, oh, you know, I've done this before. It was hopeless. So, you know, when you do embark on those, you really have to mean it and you have to listen and act on what you've heard. I think that's crucial. And I actually think we need to be talking a lot more about local government and the role of local authorities here. Um, because, you know, whether we're talking about post-pandemic economic recovery, whether we're talking about um, addressing energy-related issues, we're seeing decentralization in our energy systems. We're seeing much more happening at a local level. And really, local authorities and local governments, they know their constituents best. They know best where interventions might need to be targeted. They know best how to reach communities who, or, or parts of their communities who may often be overlooked. But right now, they don't have the power, the capacity, the resources, um, or the accountability. Um, and so what we've got is a system where their priorities may not be aligned with um, some of these uh, wider national priorities, or, or perhaps they are aligned, but they're also juggling trying to do a whole load of, of, of different things. So engaging them in a way that we know they want to. I mean, just look at the sheer number of local authorities throughout the UK that have declared climate emergencies, who have got really... Um, exciting targets, you know, ahead of the UK's national targets to deliver net zero emissions. So I think there's actually a real capacity to engage them to do to do something much faster, much, uh, much more equitable, where they can actually start to make a real difference here. I mean, I think the paper also picked up on the role of innovative, um, deliberative democracy, like the Climate Assembly that we saw in the UK, and there's been repeated at local government level in a few places, um, and using really different kinds of engagement. 
um, because it's it's not just some of those challenges that Rebecca just referred to about local government not always being the people with agency, but also making sure that they really are well plugged in with the needs of all of the members of their community. And the kind of approach taken by the Climate Assembly was fantastic because it was fully representative across all different kinds of groups. Um, and that's a really good way to try and approach um, the transition in a just way. Um, there are definitely ways to improve on that. Um, but I think what was fascinating was out of that exercise, you saw that everybody felt like the transition should be fair, which is kind of at the heart of what we're talking about now. Um, and those kind of those kind of uh, gatherings um, and approaches to democracy can also allow people to express what what role they want to play and what role they feel confident and capable in playing. Yeah, I think that's true. What, what worries me a little bit about models like citizens' assemblies is that they are incredibly effective for those people who are directly involved. They are still very tiny, um, tiny groups. And we need to think a bit more broadly about how do we reproduce that? Or, or is that a method that will work at a larger scale? Or, or how can we empower people to uh, more, more people to get that kind of degree of information without making people feel they've got to go back to school to, to learn a new skill, you know? Um, and I think, again, with local authorities, there's no doubt whatsoever that we need a proper funding for local authorities to have the skills available to do this kind of thing. But also we have to admit that not law, not all local authorities are, are, are the most effective or, or know their communities as well as perhaps some third sector organisations that might. So we also need to encourage collaboration between local authorities and their local community organisations development trusts and you know local organizations local energy groups for example there's a kind of ecosystem that needs to be built up it's not that one particular structure is going to solve this for us but we need to get people being prepared to share their agency with others and listen to others more effectively and i think in a situation where institutions and organizations feel that they're under threat feel that they're struggling because they're not properly funded that's a very difficult scenario to do it so we need to think about how we fund these processes as well justice doesn't come out of nothing you know it has to come out of confidence and agency and consideration uh so i think we need to feel you know recognize that that there are emotional states if you like and and sort of sense of security that is quite important here it's hugely important and i think very often the people who are the most negatively affected are the ones who feel least able to make their voices heard. And, and I think an interesting point you make in the paper is actually those who will be most affected by this in the medium to long term, young people, are again quite marginalised from the conversation. How do we ensure that, that we have got, we've included those people? How do we make the just transition truly inclusive to make sure those voices are heard in a way that is not, as you say, superficial or worse still, puts people off so we have to do it twice as well the next time around? And one thing I'd say to that, which is maybe a little bit coming at it from a different angle, is is that you don't always have to include people just by having a conversation with them. Um, so genuinely including people in actions and then finding solutions is also important. Um, and this is where I bring in the importance of the skills agenda. So I, we haven't really spoken about that yet, but uh, having a long-term perspective on skills, um, and that really can bring in young people because we want to make sure that all of the people um, coming into the jobs market today are equipped for being part of building a low carbon transition in whatever way that might touch upon their jobs. Um, and so building a good long-term skills approach is really important. Of course, also means reskilling people suitably at different stages in their life um, or adding, adding professional development to people who already have businesses in that space. But I think thinking about engaging people in a way that is really orientated towards action and might meet people in different places um, can be part of the answer. 
Yeah, and that goes beyond just creating new jobs, doesn't it, Alyssa? That's actually about ensuring that this is part of everybody's development process and 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 job role as they move forward into you know into the next decade. I wonder if there's any difference to be found in the devolved nations approach. And 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 obviously COP26 is a UK hosted event. It's an international event. Um, you know, this network itself brings together something like 50 universities. So we've got clear collaboration across different sectors, different disciplines, different um, individual, you know, nation states. But but are there any learnings where we've got particular expertise and examples of good practice across the devolved nations or in even in, in devolved regions that we should be learning from, Simone, perhaps? Yeah, so one that struck me really um, as very interesting is the um, policy in Scotland around community engagement in renewable energy. So there's a clause in the um, there's a clause in the um, procedure when you apply to, for example, install the wind turbine, is that you have to consider the opportunity for community engagement, and that might mean community ownership. And just having that step, saying, "Have you opened up for a community?" share ownership in this proposal is a really crucial one. And, and immediately, any developer has got to think about, okay, who is the community here? Uh, what kind of, you know, what kind of engagement could they have? Could there be some level of ownership that we share with different parties? That's an, a really interesting example. I, I haven't yet seen an um, evaluation of how that's worked, but I think we need to see that and think about those kind of steps. And we're talking about uh, an international agenda as well, aren't we? And, and obviously, just transition isn't just about just transition here in the UK. It's it's just transition across the globe. And and, and are there any either warning signs or, or good signs? I mean, you know, learnings that we could take from projects elsewhere internationally that we should be considering. That, that's two different questions. Um, the, the first one about. Um issues are on the global scale. I think that's it's everything from the access to affordable and renewable energy around the world, obviously, is a really important question. But but there are, there are a lot of concerns that are quite well rehearsed around sourcing of resources, for example. So um, if you stop digging for oil and start evaporating for lithium or uh, digging for the kind of minerals, the rare earth minerals you need to put in magnets for, for wind turbine generators, for example, then you're shifting the costs and benefits of renewable energy as well. So renewable energy is not in its own right completely environmentally so or socially just. It also entails different kind of questions of balances of power and, and geopolitical relations and so forth. And they they need to be taken seriously. We can't pretend that somehow by going to wind turbines and solar panels we're going to solve the world's problems. Um, so there's a lot to think about there. But there are some good initiatives. Uh, for example, um, the Barefoot College in India, where they're particularly training women to do engineering work to maintain renewable energy infrastructure, for example. That's a way to address a really serious inequality around gender uh, across the country and across the globe, because um, they're also bringing people in from or women in from other countries. So there's an example of thinking not just about the technology and how do we train the engineers, but who is an engineer? Who do we think about um, as a trained person? And who do we think about as an expert? So that's maybe once uh, one example we could consider. That's absolutely fascinating, and that touches on that that that, that multi you know intersectionality of this. It's about you know gender justice and justice for for, for all communities, and it goes beyond. Obviously, goes beyond energy. I mean, would you do you either of you have a kind of particular call out that you would want to put as we think about the run up to copper? That's something that are either our policy making policymakers or or those who might be attending COP in a professional capacity, in a big business perhaps, should be considering as we think about the run-up to, you know, this international conference. I mean, what would your call for action be 
to to those those attendees, those decision makers. Rebecca. So uh, for me, I think it would be to we need to shift away from the siloed thinking that we have of either thinking about technologies or specific technologies or um, social change or behavioral change or even different uh, parts of the energy or climate or broader ecological system separately. These are all interconnected with one another. And so unless we start to do a better job at appreciating those interconnections, we're going to miss um, opportunities to really drive change at the pace we want. And we're also going to run the risk of seeing unintended consequences and potential negative outcomes. I mean, earlier we were talking about um, the feed-in tariff scheme. Um, and in the UK, whilst that's done really, really great things for, um, you know, in engaging small businesses, growing renewables, you know, it was a great first step to grow renewables. It's had huge impacts on kind of widening inequality gaps with those that can afford to, to take it up, taking up. And, and when you look at that across across the nation, you really start to see that these um, technologies have been implemented in places where people were able to afford them. So I think that unless we start to take this broader whole systems perspective and bridge across those silos and start having those um, those conversations with policy teams that might not have been talking previously, we're going to continue to see um, these these gaps and we're not going to really reap the benefits we need to reap. So that would be my my kind of key message is that we need to start doing a lot more of cross cross silo thinking, cross siloed engagement and policy making. I agree, of course. And I would say that means a couple of things. It means stop blaming the users, stop blaming customers or consumers or whatever you want to call them for making bad choices. Think about why they're making those choices in the first place. And the other thing is to say, stop thinking that the next technology is going to answer all your problems. So any technology is only as good as the way it's implemented, is only as good as what it costs and which resources it uses. We're always going to need a mix. We know, we're never going to know in advance which is the right answer. And if we just latch onto one thing, we're missing all the other things we could be doing. So I think those are the two call outs that I have. Stop blaming the user and stop pinning your hopes on technology. <laughs> I could say that it's very slightly gloomy, that second yes, point. Yes, okay. Right? <laughs> I thoroughly agree with the first one. But no, you're right. We can't, there's, it goes back to your point, Rebecca. It's not a, it's not a one simple solution. This is an a, a interconnected, um, multidisciplinary solution. Alyssa, I know you want to say something. Yeah, I wanted to bring it to the international level. So obviously, COP26 is a big international negotiation. Um, and just transition is something that actually appears as part of the debate and the discussion at the level of these international um, climate discussions. And so I think my my call out or request would be for um, our negotiators and others to be really cognizant about what just transition means in an international context. And of course, at heart of that is um, is what we're trying to achieve in, in negotiations in Glasgow, right? That we're achieving something fair between different nations. Um, but it's really about thinking about the knock-on effects internationally. And then maybe I'll say something a little bit controversial. It's also to make sure that we don't let people use the conversation around just transitions uh, as something to prevent them from taking action on climate change. Um, and I think I think we should be politically aware that on the international stage, this can be used quite ambiguously. And so I think the more precise that we can be about what positive examples of just transition look like at the local, national, and perhaps bilateral or multilateral level, if we can if we can provide those examples, then we can help move in this direction at the international scale too. 
And for me, that, that's spot on. And it's about stopping thinking about just transition as something separate to delivering net zero and realizing that it's actually at the heart of delivering net zero. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's part, it is the pathway. It isn't a part of the pathway. It's the pathway, isn't it? And, and I think that we've, you know, we've had a really clear example, um, with the response to the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic, which has shown that those, um, communities that are poorer, that are marginalized, that are less included have suffered worse. And that those of us who are fortunate enough to just transition our work ways to, to working from home, you know, in a low carbon way, we, we, well, we've suffered, we haven't had the full on frontal effects of it very often because we've been closeted in our homes and we've been able to stay safe. And, and I think we have to accept that this is a massive revolution in the way that we think about how we work together and how we work as communities globally. Simone, you wanted yes, to? Yes, I think, and I just, when you mentioned COVID, I think it's really important to say that, you know, one of the things that happened now is that a lot of steps that we should have taken some time ago have suddenly all landed on us at once and they've had the worst possible outcome for many people. We don't want people to think that, oh, well, a, a transition to decarbonisation means we have to give up all the things that we like doing in life because that's not true. We just have to do them in a different way and we're probably doing them in a way that we enjoy more. Hmm. So while the call out is partly to, I mean, I, I was a bit negative, don't do this, don't do that, but actually it, it's saying that it's going to work if everybody gets something out of it. It's going to work if we really think a bit carefully about um, why we're doing it and take with us the best lessons that we have learned so far. It's about listening to those voices who otherwise are excluded because they can tell us how to do that. Because we know that we haven't listened to them in the past and we're not getting anywhere. <laughs> Unless we listen to those people who we've not been listening to, we're not going to solve this problem at all. Absolutely. It's a rebalancing, isn't it? It's a rebalancing a conversation. It's a rebalancing of our perspectives and our resources and the opportunities across not just this country, but across the globe. It's a huge, huge task. Um, it's a massive agenda. And I know that you, um, you are looking at a, a, a more in-depth paper and, uh, an extension of this, this, the, the short briefing that we've been basing today's conversation on. And we'd be absolutely love to have you back and explore some of those issues as you work through those in more detail. Um, we, we should bring something to a, our conversation to a close. I think Rebecca's itching to just say one more thing and I don't want to cut you off. Yes, I do. I just wanted to say um, that we, uh, that I also co-host a podcast called Local Zero, uh, which you can find on Twitter using the hashtag Local Zero or at energyrev underscore UK. And we explore a whole lot of these issues looking at climate action really on the local level um, and solutions that can be implemented on the local level. Brilliant, Rebecca. Thank you so much. And we'll definitely, definitely listen to that one. So thank you. So we really should bring it to a, a close. A huge thank you to, to our guests today, to Rebecca and to Simone, and obviously, of course, to, to you, Alyssa, for co-hosting, um, and to the wider COP26 Universities Network, which is a, an example of collaborative thinking and behavior and um, the best of our institutions working together. So we must shout out to that network and a thank you to them. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Climate Papers. Do subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or via the website, COP Universities Network website or the Grantham Institute website or at theplanetpod.com. And be sure to tweet us at planetpod or at Grantham Institute using the hashtag climate papers. We'd love to hear from you. I um, rather cheesily would say don't cop out, do cop in. Um, but I would like to say another thank you to my guests, to Rebecca and to Simone. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us here. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. And to you, Alyssa. Thanks, Amanda. And to our listeners, thank you and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 